You are listening to the Gay Florida Man podcast. This podcast is hosted by retired corrections officer, Mark DeWolf, who will discuss various topics prevalent to corrections, gay culture, arts and entertainment, as well as current events. Listeners need to be advised that this podcast will discuss situations involving extreme violence, substance abuse, sexual assault, and murder. Details of actual events have been modified so as to protect the privacy of involved parties. Welcome back to the Gay Florida Man. This is episode 28. And Chris is coming back to talk about his federal time and his spending time inside a federal institution as compared to the Utah State Prison. This is The Other Side of the Bars, part two. But before we jump in with Chris, I wanted to talk about a couple of things coming up that are very cool. The first one is Tim Laws is going to be on the show to talk about the Prop Stores Entertainment Memorabilia Live Auction, November 3rd through the 6th. And we're going to be talking about some very specific horror pieces going on the auction block. Two different masks worn by Michael Myers in the Halloween movies, an original Freddy glove from Jason vs. Freddy, two different hockey masks worn by Jason in Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives and Jason vs. Freddy, as well as one of Jason's original machetes from Jason vs. Freddy. So that's very cool. And I've got a special guest coming back to the podcast for a very special Halloween episode where we talk about horror movies that this particular individual loves. So we're going to be talking to that person, but I don't want to give away the surprise. That one will actually get posted on Halloween. But for now, let's talk to Chris about spending time in a federal prison. Chris, welcome back to the Gay Florida Man podcast. I'm glad you came back. You apparently didn't have that bad of a time because you join us once again, and I appreciate it. No, not at all. I, you know, I think I, I, I hope that I'm correct in saying I think that you and I will stay friends and that we've become friends through this process, and I'd be happy to, to join you anytime. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you very much. Where we left off last time is you had finished up your time at the Utah State Prison, and I know you had talked about Gunnison and uh, Draper. You served your time that you owed the state of Utah, and then you had to owe federal time. Is, is that correct? Uh, close. The reality of it is I still had you know some of my zero to five left to serve there uh, with the indeterminate sentencing in Utah, but as we kind of discussed before, as soon as they knew the federal system was taking me in, they were washing their hands of me due to, you know, overcrowding and, and other things. So uh, mm-hmm. it was more just remanding me into federal custody, commuting the rest of my sentence so that, uh, you know, they could just wash their hands of me completely. Just for the purposes of, we know he's still in custody, but we don't have to deal with him. Let's get him out of here. We yeah, got to He's going to be there longer than our five years he owes us. Let's just cut him, cut him loose and get him off the top airport. Okay. How does that transfer happen? You know, you're, I imagine it's an early, uh, early morning thing. Like, uh, do they wake you up? Like what, what happens with that? I knew that it was going to happen. They don't tell you the day that it's going to happen, but sure. I, I got my sentence from the federal courthouse and, you know, I was looking at a decent chunk of time and I didn't really know what to expect. I knew it was coming within a week. I gave away anything that I knew I couldn't take with me which was pretty much everything. One day early morning, they did. They just came knocking at the door and said, grab whatever you can bring with you. The only thing I could take with me was paper items, so letters or anything like that. Uh, Any other things I'd acquired throughout my stay there had to stay. They told you to roll up. Exactly. (laughs) I've I've told a few people in 20 years to roll up. (laughs) (laughs) surprise 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 well and i remember when we used to have to move people out whether they were getting transferred or whatever we'd have to do a property inventory and so i know if they're not going to tell you that you're going to get moved because it's super secret squirrel shit they can't do the inventory then you might get on the phone and say hey 
to people outside, hey, I'm getting moved tonight or tomorrow morning. They're inventorying yeah. my stuff. So they can't tell you. But did they do an inventory on whatever property you were leaving USP with? Yeah. Yeah, uh, okay. which is pretty much I mean, fit in a small shitty laundry bag. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Those pin bags. Yeah, and I mean, really, I only brought, like I said, papers, letters from from people that were important to me, and you know, of course, I was bringing my federal court paperwork with me because I knew that I would need them wherever I was going. Well, it's interesting because you remember also, and I'm sure this is going to bring back some memories, but USP would give you two bags, two legal bags. And one was marked public legal. One was marked private with like an orange sticker, correct? Yep. Yeah. And then the and, blue folders were, I can't remember. One of them had a blue folder signifying, I think, your criminal paperwork, essentially. Okay. And staff could not go through the privileged legal stuff. They could go through the public, but the privileged, if you did a cell search as an officer and you saw a privilege bag, and you look in there, and that particular person had something that was not legal material, say yeah. a tattoo gun or something like that, then we had to take the whole bag and send it to the contract attorney to decide what is legal, what's not legal if somebody... And and so it was really important for people housed there, don't start hiding shit in your privileged legal bag, especially if you have a court date coming up, because the staff are going to take it, correct? Yep, Absolutely. That was a big game, especially in the UNAs. I'll never forget that. So they roll you up, and I guess you're probably thrown in the back of some type of police vehicle or police van. Did they fly you or did they drive you? I uh, I was taken first to the federal courthouse in downtown Salt Lake. Uh, okay. Transport from just from the Draper Penitentiary. As soon as we got there, there was other people that were kind of being housed, some of them that were fighting federal cases through county jail. Two others that were had been fighting federal cases from the state prison as well. It was the eeriest thing ever. I really honestly thought this shit only happened in movies. They had to go through a booking situation for the federal system, right? Because we're officially being booked into federal custody. So re-fingerprinted, okay. like uh, kind of pretty much everything you would do at the very start of an R&O situation. You know, you go through that classification. But then when they cuff you up, uh, you're familiar with the black box, right? I don't know that I am. What is the black box? So the black box is where they turn your cuffs sideways. Um, oh, and they, they yes. attach the it, box to it so that your hands slides. are kind of, Yeah. Yeah, you can. Yeah, of course I am. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So they do that, but they've actually got one that's kind of for your feet as well that really, really limits the movement of your feet. See, so it's pretty much not much more than a shuffle. Um, so, as if traditional shackles weren't enough. I, you know, I always forget because people that are listening, they don't know what a black box is. And it's basically like a, a metal sleeve that fits over the chain. And so that nobody can have any access to the chain or do anything, right? It's a sleeve that goes over and it's a larger sleeve than for the shackles. You know, there's no funny business on a transport. Now, I don't yeah. know if you know this, but I remember whenever you would do a transport, you always put on your leg shackles with the keyhole down yep. so that somebody that is shackled cannot have access to the keyholes. And I tell you, right before I left the prison, I was doing an overtime shift maybe a year before I retired. And I was doing this overtime shift and I had brought a guy over and the keyholes were down the way that I always was always trained. And there was a much newer staff and he said something, and this is, just sometimes with some of the people you work with, but he had made reference to the fact that I didn't clearly didn't know what I was doing because the keyholes are down and I didn't say anything because there was another staff there, but it's like, no, you fucking idiot. That's the way it's supposed to be done it's supposed to be. Yeah. And, and here you have like a much younger guy with much less experience saying, you know, you're a dummy. You put the keyholes down and now yeah. he has to get down on his hands and knees to do the restraints. Like, well, you're a fucking moron because you just have the guy lift up one leg at a time. Usually you have him put it on a chair so you can access the keyhole. But I'm not going to teach this guy. He'll learn over time that he's the Nimrod. Sorry. Yeah, have him kneel on the bench. I mean, there's the concrete yep. bench there for a reason, guys. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it's sad because, you know, Chris, I saw inmates try to tell new staff, like, look, I'm going to give you some advice. This is how we can do this. 
oh, no, 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 he's going to pull one over my eyes. He's going to pull the wool over my eyes. I'm not going to trust this guy because he's incarcerated. And I know that, you know, when they just come out of the academy, they have that really tense, like it's us against them. You know, you guys are all trying to kill me. And then over time, you start to relax and you start to realize who the ones you need to be careful of. And again, I know there's somebody out there listening to this podcast right now going, Mark's a fucking moron because you have to be vigilant with every person. They're all trying to fucking kill you. And, you know, there's always the Ronnie Lee Gardner who went in for like writing a bad check and then he killed people. But, you know, there's times a good seasoned corrections officer is always aware, is not, you know, trying to hammer every dude. You got to start to get good judgment on different personalities and know how to talk to people. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm passionate about this shit. (laughs) I I am too. I mean, you said it's us against them, but the truth is I found that the longer I did time, I found that it was us, meaning the inmates and traditional CLs against the administration, as you probably mentioned in some of your other podcasts. Oh, amen, Chris. Amen. My place was not to judge the guys that were incarcerated. And, you know, I got along with 99% of them. And it just occasionally, you know, some guy didn't look at me. He looked at my badge and didn't like me. So it happens. So you go through this booking process and you've got the little black box on the cuffs and on the shackles. And here's where it really gets weird. So right there off of, uh, I can't remember what South that is, where the federal courthouse is. And they literally just start marching us out and they've got armed guards and they've all got ARs and they're Mm. marching us out the back door of the federal courthouse. But when we get out there, they've got the entire street shut down. Really? Yeah, like you've got the both lanes in front of the side door, that whole block completely shut down. And there's a big barred transport unit that looks like a school bus, essentially. Okay. Um, We get marched, you know, down the street, like a half a block to where the bus is parked. And I I really feel like a lot of it was for show. But I've never seen more armed guards for like eight or nine guys in my life, you know? (laughs) you're, You're describing con air to me. You know what? This is what's so funny is that is exactly what I started to think. Cause I, I was like, <laughs> I was like, this is. I thought that was just trumped up for the movies, right? Uh-huh. And and we got on the bus, and I shoot you not. The next stop was the airport, and so we literally did, and we traveled on a con air of sorts. That, you know, sands the the cages in the back. Of course, it was a traditional plane. Uh, the only difference is they did have chain loop rings at the center on the floor, welded to the floor, uh, in front of every seat. Wow. So they, they loaded us up, and then there wasn't a ton of us on the plane, but we went from Salt Lake International getting loaded onto the plane uh, right there on the tarmac, again, armed guards. So it really was like a con air situation to wow. landing in California and picking up probably another 200 people. So, Whoa! It was uh, how big is this plane? Wow. Uh, like a Boeing seven forty seven, you know. So it's a, I mean, this is a center row and two side rows. I mean, this is a huge, huge plane. Oh my gosh! I had no idea. I it's thought you were going to tell think me you'd take an international trip to Hawaii or you know or somewhere in this massive plane is what you would think, but it's all convicts and federal marshals, U.S. marshals. You're looking around at all these different people. Was it white collar criminals? Was it like badasses? Was it Con Air? What were the other guys that were being transported? As you're looking around, where you're like, oh my God, these are some real badasses. These are heavies of society. Like you got like the current day Al Capone and you have all these heavy. I mean, what are these other guys like? Honestly, there's a pretty good mix of, of everybody at this point. You've got your white collars that are probably headed to camp at some point mixed with severe threat group classified guys and career criminals and, and you name it. You've got even, you know, refugees that don't have identification. They're stuck in the federal system from Cuba that are there. Just a pretty, pretty diverse group of guys. But at this point, I, mean, I didn't really know what the fuck was going on. And I had no idea where I was even going at this point, too. I knew by the time we hit L.A., that as soon as we started taking off, they said they were headed to El Reno, Oklahoma. At this point, I hadn't been able to tell anybody that I knew where I was going, what was going on. I mean, nothing. 
you know. Super secret squirrel shit. Yep, absolutely. Over the course of this period, we I get to El Reno, Oklahoma, and they, they basically land there. They load us again onto a bus and uh, take us into the federal system in El Reno. And this facility is just a gigantic classification warehouse, basically. It's basically like a big, giant R&O, essentially, receiving orientation. Wow. And so you go in there, and when do you finally get into a cell? Like, what's the process between the time you actually walk into this complex, this Arno complex? What do they do? Like, what's the process before you're actually put in a cell and say, this is where you're going to be staying while you're here? Honestly, it felt like hours because we we were milling around in this massive complex, and, and it wasn't just our bus. There were other buses coming from other planes. It, it just felt like this place was like a, a shipping warehouse of people. You got to realize there were people also getting bussed out of El Reno and getting shipped to their various federal systems or different federal prisons as well. Where so, they'll actually serve their sentence. Yeah, so you've got... Hundreds of guys coming in in our group, hundreds of guys traveling out of another group. You know, they're running us through fast as you can, TB tests and all kinds of intake stuff. And maybe about an hour or so, they let us know where we would probably be going in terms of facility. But we were not 100% sure whether we were going to be classified as max, minimum, medium. You know, well, I had a pretty good idea where I was going, but most people didn't know what was going on. Uh, so what did you get classified as, Chris, if you don't mind me asking? So I got classified as a uh, medium high initially coming into uh, El Reno, Oklahoma. By the time I left there, they classified me as uh, more of a high risk. And I still went to Florence, Colorado, but I didn't go to the FCI that they had originally planned to send me to. Instead, I went to a USP. And so in the federal system, the way that it works is you have your camps, um, and then you have FCIs, which can be a medium or a medium high, and they're federal correctional institutions. And then you have a USP, which is the United States Penitentiary, uh, and that's really a high risk. And then you have an ADX, which is an adult detention center that is uh, basically a supermax. It's like for prisoners, some of them I've described as like the best kept secret um, because it's completely underground, essentially, in Florence. That, like even your, even your showers are on a rotating uh, like turnstile. So your door opens, <clears throat> you step into the shower, you shower, you step back into your cell, the cell shuts, the shower moves on to the next cell. So it's what? like, a, it's the weirdest complex you've ever been in. You were in that place? For a very, very short period, just while awaiting a spot at the USP. So about three months in the ADX and then... And I started my journey in the higher facility, USP. And that was really where I feel like my true journey in the federal system was because of the ADX. You have a cell of your own. You don't even get your letters. It's considered a supermax. And so your letters are scanned into a computer system and you can read them on a screen that's behind a piece of plastic uh, inside wow. your cell. What was the charge that made you go federal? Because I remember in the first episode that we had talked about, you had said everything that had happened with the bomb and the guns and you getting beat within an inch of your life. Which one of those charges graduates somebody from state time to federal time? Both the pipe bomb originally charges an explosive drop down to dispossession of an incendiary device, which can be anything from a shotgun shell to a bottle rocket. An incendiary device is a much lesser charge, but it leaves a little bit more to the imagination to maybe, uh, you know, a future arresting officer down the road. So yeah, um, yeah. the big thing was that I was already a felon and I was in possession of, of a firearm. So it was a firearm by a restricted person. Okay. And that's where you ended up having to do federal time. Federal time. Yep. I just wanted to find out exactly what puts you in the federal system because we never really clarified that. I knew the gun charge and stuff. It really was simply that I'd already had a felony and I was now found as a, a previous felon that carrying a firearm that definitely wasn't registered to me and clearly had the numbers shaved off of it. Considered a restricted person. Yep. Well, and I remember you telling me that the cops were pretty impressed with your hardware. They, uh, they were. They, they were. It was, a, it, was a, it was a beautiful nine millimeter and it had a conversion kit on it so you could swap it out with 380 rounds just beautiful two-tone and at the time i mean 
there weren't a lot of custom gun shops like they have now where they're throwing out the beautiful work that you see on Instagram these days. But but for the time, firearms didn't really get much more customized. It did have a, a trigger pressure mounted uh, laser sight. It was it was a pretty sharp little piece. Nice. I'm sure somebody was missing that gun when the fact that it got stolen. I'm sure they were probably I am 100% positive they probably were. Pissed, totally pissed. I was mad I lost in the process, too. Wow. You're in the receiving and orientation, and then you end up, you said part of your time was in this Supermax, but then from there you get into a, a little more normal of a housing unit. Yeah, it's just a traditional United States penitentiary. It's still a, a maximum security, but it's it's more like a traditional yard, more like what you'd expect to see from Draper. Where is this facility located that you ended up at? Both of them, well, actually all three of them are in Florence, Colorado. So Florence, Colorado has a bunch of state prisons, but they also have the federal ADX, they have the USP, they've got an FCI, and they've also got a camp right there in Florence. I like to say, uh, you know, most of the town or anybody who lives there, they all got to be, you know, someone that works in a prison system or, you know, someone that works in a store that feeds the guys in the prison system. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. Or Amazon or Walmart. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> so. We had talked just ever so briefly what the staff were like, and you said that the staff, the correct me if I'm wrong, you had said the staff were pretty mellow, and it's like, hey, you know, we don't want problems. Don't cause us problems. We want to go home at the end of the day. The way that you had originally talked about the staff that work at the federal prison, they were very straightforward, very easy to get along with. I think there may be no secret to that. I mean, the reality of it is, is that, and we chatted about that I came from Asian gangs, which it was keep your mouth shut. I, mm-hmm. I rarely spoke to CL for, you know, the first good section of my dad because I just didn't feel comfortable with it. I did have a couple of CLs later on in, in my state prison that made an impact on my life. And, and I was like, yeah, maybe these guys aren't so bad after all, you know, and they opened my eyes to it. But when I hit the federal system, I had come to that realization. I'd come to that knowledge much further. And, and maybe it was that I was willing to engage on a more honest level with them than I'd ever been before as well. At this point, how many years had you been incarcerated by the time you got to this facility? Let's see. Probably a little more than five if you count, you know, the first 18 months in that of the county jail program. Right. At that point, I can see where you're starting to get a little more accustomed to the system and you're more comfortable talking to these guys. You realize that the officers are, they're doing time too. Absolutely. But I'll tell you, when I, when I hit the yard in Florence, it was almost another wake up call too, because the day I was being transferred from the ADX to the USP, there's sirens going off and I'm getting locked over by the lieutenants. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? This is all the whole place is in lockdown right now. And I was like, oh, that's great. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, what happened? And he said, well, someone stabbed the chaplain. And I was like, fuck, dude. I was like, this is not. I thought I was going to a lighter area. What the hell is going on? The here? chaplain got stabbed? <laughs> yeah. So apparently, during my stay, or just early before I got moved from the ADX there, some guys were having heroin shipped in, in the bindings of the uh, Bibles. And the chaplain. Oh caught them pulling stuff out of the the backs of the bindings of the bibles that were getting shipped directly to the prison system i mean they caught the guys but it's just so happened that day that i was walking over there was when they were shutting everything down from that so did he survive did the chaplain live he did okay all right so that was like the wake-up call because i was like man i think i'm going to this cushier place you know i just spent three months in this pretty much 24 hours a day lockdown, uh, you know, other than stepping out into your shower situation. Um, you know, I thought I'm going to be going to a much nicer place only to have my dreams dashed again. <laughs> <laughs> when you realize that, you know, you're now in the federal system and you step off that plane as you start to go through the R and O process and then to this other facility, do you ever click your heels and say, Toto, we're not in Utah anymore. I really, honestly, <laughs> yes, but I was excited because, I, again, I was like something new. I didn't really Different, know what the, sure. the dynamic was going to be because you get people from all over, you know, all over the U.S., people that are 
foreign refugees. They don't even know what to do with them. You know, I mean, so there's a, a pretty weird, you know, jumble of people there. And uh, it, it was really a huge wake up call for me. Tell me more about the federal system, because I know in Utah, you could either rent a TV set, your privilege matrix level was up high enough, you could rent a TV like six or seven dollars a month, or more restrictive units, they have a section TV. And of course, you have to have money on your books in order to be able to afford a TV. Tell me more about the federal system on the commissary. We know about the staff being pretty straightforward, cell searches and do they toss or sell all the time or tell it's me all about this stuff? Because I on, on the on the toss and the sell situation. Um there was a handful of guards, and this is exactly as you described. I can't remember the guy's name he used to toss everybody's cell with, with leather gloves. And we had three or four of the exact same personality, and I shoot you not, every one of those fuckers carried a set of, of leather gloves to talk well, to I don't know, yeah. I don't know what it is. It may, I guess maybe maybe they've been stabbed by a few needles. I guess I can't judge too much, but if you're digging that deep, you're bound to get stabbed a few times, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you have the your robocops, you know, here and there, but the way that the system works there is quarterly, they would change out officers that were assigned to a specific unit, right? So you'd have an A unit and you'd have a B unit. And in the A and B units, you'd have a guard per shift per unit. And, of course, they had their backup on the yard and had their A team and everything else and lieutenants and sergeants per shift. In each individual unit, there really was just one guy, right? And there's a shitload of dudes in there, you know? And so, arguably, this one guard is at a disadvantage because these guys' cells are open all day long. You know, it's not a permanent lockdown, even though we've got some pretty dangerous people there. It'd be an unsettling situation to be in if you didn't get along with the guys in your pod. Is it direct supervision? Is the officer in the section with you? Yeah, in the section, they have their own office. So along the along the top row of cells is two-tiered, just like most places are. Uh, in one of the upper corners where you had the best vantage point, there was an, an office of the officers. They had a big window. And had a door that he could lock himself in if he needed to, to in that so dire it's a, situation. It's a secure office. Yes. Utah was going much more in the direction of direct supervision, where the officer has to stay in the section. And it's not secure. It's like a, a desk sitting in the section with the people. And somebody always has to be in there. This, this is whole secure. direct supervision concept was becoming more and more popular in Utah. I don't know about the new prison, Chris, on how much of it's direct supervision, but I know that once they got a director that was from the county jail, they have these certain ideas, and it's like, well, this works at the county jail, so it's going to work in the prison. <laughs> but it seems like corrections is going more and more with that, putting a person in the section, and when shit goes bad, at least with the federal system, you've got an area you can lock yourself into. But if you're yeah. just kind of like up on a little platform with no windows and you're just overlooking a section, yeah. that could get pretty hairy. Yeah, it could. I found really, really quickly learning the dynamics there, at least from you know anybody who'd been there for a long time, that most of the COs, it was really about finding out like how they preferred to run their unit. And if we treated them with enough respect to ask them how they wanted their unit run, you know, most of the time, as long as we abide by those rules, anything else went. I just learned really quickly, and, and I'm a pretty vocal person. And by then, I you know, I didn't have the the fear of chatting people up. And I was always one of, one of the guys who would come up. Because I think I mentioned to you, through my stay there, I decided that I was going to become a tattoo artist as a hustle. So, yeah. You know, and so while that's not necessarily legal there or at all, I would just ask the guard, I'd say, hey, how do you feel about tattoo artists and how do you feel about tattoos? And they would tell me. And they know what I'm asking. I'd get a number of different responses where they'd be like, I don't want to see it. And then my response to that would be, but are you looking for it? Right? <laughs> like, what are your rules? And I would just break it down to them and say, look, out of respect for you, if you're not down with it and you don't want it to be done for the next 90 days, we're going to abide by those rules. And that's just how it works. I think that as soon as you establish that kind of relationship with the CEO, of, you know, hey, what are your pet peeves? What do you absolutely hate? What do you not give a shit about? And it was just pretty much a, a working relationship from there. I think 
most of the officers that didn't give a shit about tattoos and brewing beer and, and and shit like that, most of them, all they cared about was, hey, don't fuck me when it comes to lieutenants. Like, if a lieutenant or a sergeant comes in here, have a fucking look out and get your shit put away so that I don't get nailed. <laughs> well, I think that there's an understanding with corrections. Look, I'm going to do the job, okay? And so I'm not going to give you a pass. If I do a cell search and you fucked up, you left your tattoo gun out, I'm taking it. And, you know, if I can pin it on you, you're going to get written up. I'm being straightforward with you. Yeah. I'm not going to go hunting. I'm not going to watch you constantly trying to get you. That I don't do that. I got to do a certain standard to the job and I'm going to do it. My supervisors are going to know I'm going to do the job. If I stumble upon you and you're given a tattoo, well, you and your recipient are both going to get written up. I'm going to take whatever equipment. I have to do the job. Yeah. I'm not going to go around like constantly trying to sneak up and trying to constantly get you. No. And when I was working as a CEO, I'm going to tell you, Chris, you always had to draw first blood with me. I'm not going to go in and fuck with you. But if you're going to test me, then you're going to basically fuck with the bear. You're going to poke the stick at the bear. Then I'm going to have to do something. Yeah, because Because, it's, it's, it's what's in order. Yeah. And so, I mean, I've got a job to do. If I roll over and go soft, once everybody knows I'm soft and they start doing all this shit when I'm on duty, well, we all know what's going to happen. You know, I'm going to end up either getting fired or moved or whatever. I've got a job to do and they're paying me to do it. I've got to do it to a certain standard, but I'm not going to try to fucking go after somebody constantly. I mean, and I think that what he's saying when he says, make sure you have your lookout or make sure you have your ducks in a row, because when you're in there, it's like, look, I know this is a game and you know, you've got your, you got to get one over on the staff or, you know, you got to get the ramen noodles or you, you know, whatever the case may be. And you're going to do what you do inside of a correctional facility. And I've got to do what, what I've got to do. And so there's that understanding. But, you know, if you fuck up, if you make a mistake, I'm not going to look the other way. I'm not going to be a, a dirty cop. Yeah. I, I cannot do that. Here's the thing. Like it, to the degree in the federal system, there are probably, I'd say, a good 50% of COs that said, hey, you don't even have to hide it from me. Just hide it from you know, lieutenants or anybody that comes in and and the ones that didn't care if you hit it from them, it looks more normal for the officer to just walk past your cell than for something else to be going for them to peek in. Sometimes they'd go in and they'd watch, you know, and be like, Oh, that's a really cool design. That's awesome. You know, (laughs) it it, it was, it was wild. I could never imagine something like that happening in Utah state prison. I told you before that I got written up for reckless burning, you know, making ink, and, yeah, uh, yeah, you did. Yeah, I told you to ask me about that because I did have this is one time that an officer showed mercy on me for a write up, and it was only because, well, I'm not necessarily the officer. It was the uh, it wasn't. It was a hearing officer for the write up, and it was because I'd made him laugh his ass off, and he'd never heard it before. And I told him that I was fighting it, and he said, "What are you going to fight it on?" He said, "They walked into the cell like he literally had a fire going." On what grounds are you saying that you're not guilty? I said. This is a reckless burning. I said, this is totally a controlled burn. I said, <laughs> if you look at the pictures, there's water here. There's water over here. <laughs> there's water over here. I said, if anything's going to get out of control, we had it under control. <laughs> and the dude lost it. And he said, I'll tell you what. He says, you can consider yourself lucky. He said, I've never done this. He said, but that is the most unique hilarious answer i've ever heard he said let you get away with it this time he said he's it at that point i'd already served whole time for it you know etc so it was pretty much uh just getting rid of the the write-up on my record essentially but uh, it was just kind of a funny ordeal i thought i'd tell you about once we stop recording you got to tell me who that do you remember who that idho was i do not remember who it was but okay. it, it was a sergeant out of um out of the okers that wrote me up initially so, and he didn't want to write me up either in the first place, but he was like, dude, he's like, you need to get a better lookout or a better system. So he's like, this is just, you know, <laughs> infantile, dude, get better at it. Come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it used to be like a long time ago that if you saw 
somebody with a lot of tattoos, oh, well, that guy served time. But now tattoos have become so mainstream. I think most of my friends now have tattoos. They didn't even serve in the military. Like they just, they just love tattoos. They love ink and they do, you know, full sleeves and chest, back, I mean, ankles, whatever. They love it. The only tattoo that I would ever consider getting, did I already tell you this? Uh, maybe. Remind me. Are you familiar with Mad Magazine? Okay, yeah. You know Alfred E. Newman, the, the mascot for Mad Magazine? Yeah. He's got the missing tooth. I grew up reading Mad Magazine. I loved the fact that it was kind of like borderline inappropriate. And I was immediately attracted to it as a kid. I loved the inappropriate humor that Mad Magazine offered. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And, you know, Howard Stern and David Letterman both read Mad Magazine growing up. And I definitely connect with them on that. It's great, inappropriate humor. I loved it as a kid. I was attracted to it. And I've always loved that mascot, Alfred E. Newman. I'd love to get it on my back, on my shoulder blade is just his, his face with really good depth and colors and stuff. That's the only tattoo I think I could really live with for the rest of my life. Well, I can respect that. I especially I have a, a love for Mad Magazine myself. The, <laughs> the publication was a huge fu to the Comics Association when they were trying to shut down comic books because it was a bad influence on children. Yes, and they exactly. and they decided to change the size to, and they published as a magazine instead because magazines weren't regulated by the Comics Association. I yep. Absolutely love it. Do you know that the most difficult? issue to find i don't know if it still is it's probably like uh issue one or two now but for a long time and i can't remember the exact number of the issue but all it is is just has a big hand on it and it's given the bird and that was the whole cover of the magazine and i found it new york city and i had gone up my first time in new york city chris uh i was with my my first partner when we were not out of the closet but I said, we got to go to EC Publications in Manhattan. Uh, we went there. It was listed um, on the inside of a magazine, EC Publications, with the address. We went to it. We went up there. And Annie Gaines, William Gaines' widow, was running the magazine. And she gave us a tour of the office. And all the artists for Mad Magazine lived all over the world. And they shipped their artwork into Manhattan. None of them wow. come in and actually draw inside the the office there in Manhattan. But she gave me a tour of the office and they had this book that everybody that comes and visits has to sign. And she pointed out different celebrities that had visited Mad Magazine's offices. And one of them was Carol Burnett. She pointed out Carol Burnett's autograph. Nice. I so. can see her being a Mad Magaziner, that's for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Fantastic memory though. Yeah. That was that was like 1993, I think, that I was there. 93 or 94. It was really cool. You could do a whole new podcast on the comics and magazines. <laughs> oh, easy. It would, I mean, you could, yeah, easy. That definitely, there's a lot of people that, that follow comics. It's, it's oh. amazing. So back to prison. Um, what was the difference between commissary, what you could order on a federal level and commissary that you could order in Utah? It's ridiculous. Again, coming from the Utah state prison to the federal prison, commissary was night and day difference probably not to anybody's knowledge early on you could get bottles of robitussin on commissary, and you could order your own cough syrup and that was when it still had the dextromethacin in it um, wow. you guys were getting fucked up all over the yard on the robitussin so i mean you could order your own cold medicine you could order cartons of cigarettes at that time. Oh, wow. I, they didn't actually remove smoking from the federal system until I want to say they were still phasing it out the year that I left. So, with Utah, did you ever were you able to get access to tobacco or drugs or anything inside the state prison in Utah? And not pills, because I know pills are traded and swapped for commissary. But were you able to ever smoke inside the state prison? Oh, rarely, rarely did tobacco come around uh, in the state prison when when it did. It wasn't really something that I partook of. I thought, you know, if a little weed came around, I'd I'd be game for it. 
But uh-huh. that, that also didn't come around very often. And when it did, it was like the size of a toothpick. What you saw most rampantly in Utah was heroin more than anything. I tried it a handful of times. I got to say, it wasn't my thing. I tried it a few times because I had to just make sure. You know, I, it just ended up not being something that I ever really enjoyed. So um, I pretty much refrained from a lot of drug use when I was in the state prison. However, when I was in the federal prison, I smoked a fair amount of marijuana that pretty regularly there. And then obviously tobacco was totally legal there. Somebody that we both know that was in UNA1 for committing a murder down in Gunnison that mm-hmm. got made into a documentary. He got heroin on a tray in UNA1, which is pretty shocking. Of course, it would have had to come through the kitchen. And then he had like some type of alternative tray. And that's how he got the needle and, and whatever. And he, I don't know if he tried to overdose or he just wanted to be high. But it's always fascinating how these things can come into the prison. Of course, you have dirty staff and then visitation. There's not a whole lot of ways to get drugs into prison. Yeah. And that's always fascinating. It's a big deal <clears throat> when they would find drugs. And, of course, a huge investigation how this could have gotten into that secure. Especially you win a one. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy, but I, I know there was definitely in my time a handful of people that ended up getting busted because they uh, they crossed the line and they brought in drugs for money or whatever reason, or they had started a relationship with somebody that was housed there. Yeah. Heroin was rampant there, not so much. I mean, there was a little it, bit uh, in the federal system, but more than anything, it was more cocaine and marijuana in the federal system. I know there was a guy that had bath salts in Wasatch. This would have been long after you were gone. He he didn't have a good reaction to bath salts. He became very paranoid, and he was in Baker Block. They had the staff all suited up, ready to go. The guy had a roommate in the cell on the top bunk, terrified. And this guy was Polynesian. And he was grabbing that door and shaking it. And they thought for sure in any second that door was going to come off the hinge. <laughs> the way he was grabbing <laughs> it. He was pretty amped up on those bath salts. Well, I, I can't say I've ever partaken, but I I hear it's pretty crazy. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> Oof, yeah. I, you know what? I like, I like liquor occasionally. I mean, I think that my days of like really having fun with alcohol are kind of come and gone because I just don't, you know, recover after a night of drinking like I used to. As you get older, the fun's not there if your brain feels like mashed potatoes for three days. It sucks. Yeah. So in the same way, I'm more of like a, you know, a couple on an evening, but it's definitely not a late night or uh, it's definitely not a party situation anymore. It sucks. Yeah. As you get older, it's just not worth it. You pay for it for days. It's not fun. So you're in the federal system. Um obviously commissary was a lot, but did it surprise you when you started to see what you could order cartons of cigarettes after being in Utah? I mean, in Utah to this day, you still can't get lottery tickets unless you go to Idaho or Nevada. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, here's the thing. I was a guy and while I said I didn't partake of tobacco in the state prison, I mean, it's because it all smelled like ass. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but yeah. The, the, truth is, the truth is, is like you buy it on commissary and I'm a guy who at the time, like, I do not kid you. I loved to smoke. Uh-huh. I really enjoyed, you know, nothing more than a fresh rolled cigarette, you know, and mm-hmm. I would get up in the middle of the night in the federal system just to smoke a cigarette alone while it was quiet, you know, and go back to bed. It was, uh-huh. it was my, my peace, peaceful time. When you were in that like supermax, you're housed alone. But yeah. once you got moved into a, a, a less restrictive housing unit, were you with a roommate that liked to smoke? So actually, the very, very first place they put you because you're a newbie is, you know, they put you in a room with four guys. They also have a bit of overcrowding going on there. And so they have these cells that were traditionally built for two. They threw an extra set of bunks in. You start out in rooms of four until someone leaves and somebody hopefully invites you into their cell as, you know, a roommate. Uh, you're supposed to get reassigned, but the truth is, I mean, the guards didn't just assign people. They wanted to make sure that, you know, if we're going to put somebody in a cell, that they're going to get along with the person. And they mm-hmm. pretty much allowed us to choose, for the most part, 
I mean, within that same unit who you wanted to live for and live with. And if you decided you, you know, wanted to make a change, you put in for that change and they just made it happen, especially if it was in the same unit because they just needed it. it was like, hey, you know what? Maybe it's good to separate a couple guys that don't want to be together anymore, you know? So that I love that you said that again, times where as a sergeant in the state prison, you know, these people aren't going to get along depending on who was working that you had to basically like say, because you worked there long enough and you're like, look, if we leave these guys together at two in the morning, there's going to be a fucking problem. Yep. So let's do this move. Here's the way that I handled it. Chris is like, somebody says, Hey, I can't live with this guy. And I'd say, okay, we can fix this problem. Now this is where I have a problem is they say, but so-and-so over here, I get along really well with him. It's like, now look, if you have a problem with this guy, I will accommodate it. But if you're doing this so you can live with this guy over here, forget it. Because I'm going to make a move, but I'm not going to let you manipulate me. So I'm going to put you on the top tier on the top. Oh, no, I'm good. I'm good. Never mind. I like this yeah. guy. We're good. <laughs> and so you can shut that down really easy of people trying to manipulate to get into another house. But if you have certain supervisors that are on duty and you call them and say, hey, these two aren't getting along, well, if he doesn't fill out a PC form, you know, safety concern, then forget it. We don't do convenience moves. And it was very black and white. Now, let's not go there because I don't want to be calling you at two in the morning saying, hey, we just had a fight. We had to pull these guys out and one's on the way to the hospital. There's no reason for that. So yeah. certain people do get along with others and there's similar personalities. And I don't know if back then, if you had Sigma Omega Kappa as part of your classification in Utah. Do you remember that, Chris? I do. Yeah. And so Omegas get along with everybody. Sigmas are going to get preyed upon by Kappas. So they mm -hmm. can't be housed with a Kappa. And then a Kappa can be with an Omega or another Kappa. Oh, I said, that's it. As you look as to who gets along with who, well, this guy is 100 pounds soaking wet and he likes to touch kids. And then we have this guy over here who is a really hardcore STG guy who likes to kick the fuck out of anybody else. You know, let's not put them together. That's probably not going to end well. Here's Go ahead. You got to remember, so these units are probably like two or three times the size of like uh, a union, you want two or unit three. And you got one guard in there that's kind of paying attention to everything. So this is a massive amount of guys. So they did convenience moves, but convenience moves themselves had to be approved by like a separate U.S. Marshal that was like a case manager for you. Mm -hmm. um, social laws had to be submitted through paperwork, and they were like a non-emergency situation type move. Now, the officer that was directly managing the guys there could make a you know, unilateral move if they felt like there was a dangerous situation, but convenience moves always had to go through that case manager of sorts. So, um, And in the dynamic that we had here, like in the Utah State Prison, you think about the dynamic between guards and COs, but the politics among the convicts is totally different too. And this is something I think that you will find interesting. So you know how it was in the state prison. I mean, you've got your traditional gangs, right? you got your Saks, your Saw, your Fourth Reichs, you've got your, your Asian gangs, your Hispanic gangs, your Polynesian gangs, and then you've got your just kind of people that are trying to do their time. In the federal prison, you also have all those gangs, but those gangs... Um, whether it be Aryan, Asian, Hispanic, whether it be the Kings or even the, the gangster disciples from Chicago don't get along with the disciples from New York. So you had people from different states, too. So you had all of these cars. So you had like the white guys from Utah that didn't necessarily get along with the white guys from Alabama. So it was a really, really strange hmm. type of political landscape there in terms of like clicks as well weird that's crazy in fact when i first got there there were a whole bunch of guys from utah that they were involved in i mean i was classified as a kappa too but i was not like an active dick to people right i mean you know there are guys that just they were like hey i'm gonna just go punk somebody for their shit just because i can yeah I'm, and yeah. and that's not a prison thief type of situation it's just you're strong arming somebody you know well there's probably like six or seven dudes that came over around the same time as me that went straight to the USP instead of going to the ADX. 
And by the time I got there, they were shipping them all off for diesel therapy because they did like seven dudes that turned the whole yard upside down because, I mean, they had a pretty good ecosystem there. And, you know, you had all these dudes from Utah that are just coming in there thinking it was gladiator school. And it was just like, come on, guys, what the hell's going on here? So when I came out, wow. they'd, they'd lump me into the same kind of category. And they did a really, really finite search of my body for, you know, patches and stuff. Because, you know, the last thing I wanted is to have another dickhead from Utah turning shit around over there. So. <laughs> Wow. I would have never thought in terms of like convicts in a federal facility that has people from all over the United States, Utah would be a problem. Like you'd think like California, we need to watch those guys. Nevada, we need to watch those guys. New York, fuck, we got to watch. You know what I'm saying? Older established cities and like, well, you know, Salt Lake City, the Mormons, you know, how bad can they be? I think the oppression forced them into the deep end, you know, like, yeah. it's like Hey, I'm not just going to do this. I'm going all the fucking way. You know, sure. <laughs> There's no yeah. half stepping when you're going against the grain. Yeah, Right. Right. How old are you when this has taken place? Do you remember Chris, like what year or how old you would have been? Well, I was probably 23. You don't want to hit the federal system at this point. So Chris, as far as like programs, were you required to take any type of programs while you were in the federal facility? I actually voluntarily decided to take a drug a program, not because I had a lot of drug charges, but because I was looking for... Actually... What is that? I was on a very last minute. I got to in. Oh, is, is that an alarm? It is, it is. It's time for me to rock in. Oh, we're just kidding, people. He's not. Chris is actually out of the system. But we had planned to do that just to make you believe, like, holy shit, Mark's interviewing this guy and he's in federal custody. <laughs> the reality is, is that Chris has turned his life around. And so, Chris, I got to ask you, at what point did you get notified that this hell that you had been in for so long, both on state and federal level, at what point were you notified that the light at the end of the tunnel was coming closer? So I knew uh, pretty well long ahead of time when I was getting out. I did, as I just mentioned, um, I did volunteer to join a drug program, which would qualify me for up to 18 months off of my sentence, depending on how well I did through the program. And so that was a substantial amount of time I was looking to get off. And obviously, I was looking to capitalize on any way to short my sentence whatsoever. Wow, that's great. Did the program help you? Did it give you some tools as far as staying clean? No. Oh. I, w I wish I could say that it did. You know, <laughs> uh, you're uh, honest. Yeah, I, I actually fought quite a big battle in that program too, where I had a little bit of a shithead reputation coming into this. And I did have, you know, a handful of disciplinary issues throughout my stay there. And so, it was already hard pressed to have qualified for that program, but I did get in through, you know, tireless work of my caseworker that, that fought for me to have a chance for it, even though I wasn't supposed to. And I swear to you that the counselors in that program did everything in their power to get me kicked out from then on, from pairing me with people that they thought that would be a rival gang member or maybe might want to hurt me and not knowing that I got along with pretty much everybody wow. <laughs> to even where I felt like I, I was getting set up in some instances, but I decided that I was really honestly determined to come home. I had a grandma who we talked a little bit about family on the very, very first time we met. And even though my own parents had I mean, betrayed me in my mind, I had a grandmother who came over on a boat as an immigrant from Belgium. And she never really truly grasped the English language 100%. And so she didn't really understand some of the dynamics. And for the entire time I was I was in there, she would write me almost weekly. Wow. Um, you know, asking me why I couldn't just be good. Because in her mind, she thought, you know, if I could just behave for a few weeks, they'd just cut me loose. You know, wow. and uh, it was gut-wrenching. It was heartbreaking every time I got that letter from her. And so it was a driving factor for me, regardless of uh, whether I felt like people were trying to sabotage my, my recovery program, um, whatever it was. I wanted to get out before she passed. And and that was what 
that's what pushed me to completion on the program is because I felt like she was uh, between her and my older sister that I talked to you about prior. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the only people that stuck with me and and supported me through that, with the exception of my now current wife as well, who was somebody who was friends with me when I started this journey, continued to write to me throughout uh, the entire time, visited me on a regular basis, drove to Colorado to support me uh, and and visit me and keep some sort of an anchor outside. And really, it was just the love of others and, and me wanting to to get to those people that push me to to want to do better. You know, Chris, it's amazing that as we started this story, that your support system was pretty weak as we talked about your home life and dysfunction and connecting with the family down the street that had you had met the kids, right? And then the family moves over from, was it? Uh, so uh, a couple of families were from Laos and one was from Cambodia. Yes, Cambodia and, and Laos. Now we're at the end of your time and now you have this support system, your grandmother, and then your now wife. And yep. so it's crazy how the way this story started out and now how it's ending, you got into the system with a weak support system and now you're walking out of it with this amazing support system. I can't tell you how amazing of a support system that I have. Uh, my wife has, has been an anchor for me. She's been somebody that uh, even though I've been trained through situations in life not to always be able to be vulnerable, as we talked about that being a value, is, uh, she's taught me to be able to be 100% open and honest with her, even if it's something we don't necessarily want to talk about. I've learned that I do have a support system, and that really is what it is. is you have to have, besides yourself, to do it for you. It does take some love and some support from others. You, you just can't go it alone. I think that a lot of the times recidivism is a result of people going out into the world after serving time and having no support system at all from family and friends. And it's one of the main reasons that they end up coming back. It is. And I I don't want to put it all on a support system to you. It's not for the faint of heart either. Recovery isn't, you know, not everybody makes it, you know, every one of those boys that I started out, you know, hanging out with that were that brought me into the gang every one of them are are passed away at this point all to gang violence every single one of them and uh it's uh i consider myself lucky how many situations i was in where i you know could have easily been me i've had nothing but people rooting for me to do better and i really do feel like i've been able to share my story with as many people as possible i think some people are afraid to share I think that if, if you do share, it's a world of possibilities of people that will, you know, will help you hit those goals. And I think they just need to know that, that you've moved past it. And I think being able to talk about it signifies, you know, being able to move forward as well. Of course. Well, Chris, we've come to the end of our time together once again, and I really enjoyed talking to you about the federal system and getting that closing statements that you'd said about support system and family. I think it's amazing. And I hope at some point I can actually meet you in person and say, oh, I remember you, DeWolf. You were a total motherfucker. I don't (laughs) think you would say that, but I would like to meet you in person. And at some point I'd like to meet your wife and and say that's awesome that you guys found each other and have uh, turned your life around. I love to hear success stories. Your story has been amazing on the podcast, and I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate being here. And uh, if you're out this way, you have my number. We can absolutely make that happen. And if I'm out that way, I will 100% make it happen as well. Yeah, I think that you'd enjoy the house. I think that, you know, even if movie props and horror movies aren't your thing, at least to to come into the house and to see the setup that I got, I think that you'd at least be intrigued. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if I told you, but the news a few years ago in Orlando had come out to my house and did a story on Halloween. They broadcasted live on Halloween from my house. Oh, I did not. I'm going to have to look that up. Check it out. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And also a lot of the videos, one of the videos from Utah, I think it was KSL was one of the first places to actually do an article about my props. And that is on the gay Florida man podcast, YouTube page. 
there's a bunch of videos on there. So please check them out. I'd love to get your feedback. So well, you know me, I like to talk. I'll share it. Awesome. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I also sent you the link to the China buffet so you could check that out, Chris. I started watching it, but I had one of my youngest was sitting behind me at the very opening scene, and admittedly, I didn't, I didn't open it back up. But I, I am going to get to it. I promise. Okay, <laughs> I understand. I understand. <laughs> For everybody listening, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Gay Florida Man podcast. This has been Chris, and I'm going to leave you with the same words that I leave you with every week, and that is to be good. And if you can't be good, be good at it. And if you're sitting in prison, whether it be federal or state level, or even a jail, you're not good at it. Good night, everybody.